So I'll be reading the scriptures today, and they come from three different, or two different major sections, and then some random ones uh, all around. And then throughout the scripture, or throughout the sermon, I will be using um, Proverbs um, hit and miss from a lot of different places. I'll try to indicate to you when I'm actually reading a proverb, and it's just not my brilliance that you could get confused with. Um, but if you know Proverbs and you're reading through, say, chapter 26, um, the, the, the Proverbs are like, um, it's like every fifth verse is about, or fifth proverb is about the same thing in that chapter. And so you're, you're, it doesn't, it maybe look like I'm taking it out of context, but I, I'm really just reading it as um, uh, the topics it's covering. So I'll start with Proverbs 28. Sorry, I thought it was 26. <clears throat> Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. I'm going to skip Proverbs 30 because I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. And some various others. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Leo Tolstoy uh, has this amazing short story. It's about a peasant named Payam, and Payam has lived a bleak life. But he finally, with hard work and borrowing and scrounging, he finally is able to own his own land. It is fruitful and it's beautiful. And he finally has provision for himself, for his friends, his family, and even for others. It's amazing. It's a piece of earth that he can leave to his own children. And then comes his discontentment. He just couldn't get enough of it. At one point, he hears that, uh, or one point in the story, he actually says, in his, he says almost, I don't know if he thinks or says, I can't remember exactly, but he says, I could have so much land that I don't even have to fear the devil. He tasted wealth and believed a lie. A chief in a faraway land is selling some land, and Payam travels to meet him for this opportunity. Payam finds out that the offer is true, and the land is amazing, better than he ever thought it would be. A thousand rubles would buy him as much as he wants. The only catch is, is that from sunup to sundown, he has to walk that land, and whatever he walks on that land will be his. Unless, those thousand, unless he doesn't make it back in time, then none of the land is his, and the thousand rubles isn't his anymore either. That's kind of the catch. Palm decides that he can do it, and he's going to go for 35 miles. Since at sunset, he sets off, leaving the chief there with a couple elders who's going to stay there for his entire journey. By mid-morning, he completes his first leg. He has only got a shovel. He shovels up the dirt to mark that part of the corner of his new land. Just after noon, he completes the second leg, and he shovels up another bit of dirt, marking the second leg, the second point of his new land. He's tired, and he's becoming pretty dehydrated, and he's low on water, but he's going for it. In late afternoon, he completes the third leg and shovels up dirt to mark it, And then he starts to get freaked out that he's not going to make it. No more water, lips chapped, 
but the land isn't his until he can get back. So he races the sun. Pam picks up his pace like crazy. At last, he tops the hill, and he can see the chief still sitting there. All he has to do is make it there. And just before the sun sets, he reaches him. And the chief says, what a fine fellow. And Pam falls to the ground and dies. The chief and the elders pick up Pam's shovel and dig his grave. Cool, cool. That's a good commentary. Cool. Not, not, not cool for Pam. Tolstoy ends the moral of the story. Six feet from his head to his heels is all he really needed. The title of his tale was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's an amazing story. And the conclusion is, enough to be buried in. We might ask, how much wealth does a person need? And our answer will not be based on Pam's tale, but on Proverbs and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus and how God orders his world for us and us in it. Which is why I like what kind of a, a summary kind of statement about wealth in Proverbs is from Agur, son of Jacob, or Jacques, I don't know. And he says it as a prayer to God in Proverbs 37 to 9, and you have it there. He's praying to God, and he says, two things I've asked of you. Deny them not from me before I die. The first is to remove far from me falsehood and lying. And the second is, give me neither nor poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be so full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and profane the name of my God. It reminds me of another poet thinking about money, a guy named Kanye, who says, mm, 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 wait till I get my money right. <laughs> Getting your money right is about wisdom. And there are only two things I want to explore with us today. There's so much to talk about. Scripture talks about money and wealth and, and work and all, all sorts of things. So I just want to talk about two of them through Proverbs and in light of Jesus, and that is gain and giving. And it's really hard to talk about gain and giving in a universal sense. Besides access to food and safety and shelter, it, it seems a bit arbitrary for many of us. If you make $100,000 and live in Singapore, you ain't going to make it. If you make $100,000 and live in South Sudan, you are going to be extremely wealthy. Mississippi's average house cost is $128,000. Hawaii's is $660,000 average. In Winston-Salem, in Salem, Forsyth County, is an incredible place to raise a family unless you're poor. Our county is the third worst county in the country for economic mobility. It's just the reality. Because see, wise gain and wise giving is about relationships, really. Relationships to the place you are and the people you're around. The, place, the, 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 the stuff that you need to survive and have desires on a very local level, in a family, in a community, in a city, in a specific town, ability to, to, to have uh, and permit its people to thrive. And that's different in different places, and it's different in different families. And everyone has an opinion about it, not just uh, economists, not just Kanye. 
but political parties as well, all sorts of things. But in light of our Lord Jesus, we must block out the noise of economic philosophies or partisan ideologies and just sit under his teaching. The Bible predates capitalism, communism, and socialism, and it doesn't need to apologize and is not asking for permission to speak to us, his people, about how we think about these things. Because he's going to declare his goodness, his truth, his beauty, the good way forward. So let the red hot, red hot sword of Scripture run through our presuppositions like butter. And let us give ourselves to him. Let's start with gain. Gain. There's three types of gain because the Proverbs guy obviously was a Presbyterian minister and he always has three points. Thanks for that. Appreciate that one. Really, really appreciate that one. There is good gain, bad gain, or little to no gain. Good gain first. And Proverbs does talk about this. Let me be absolutely clear. Wealth is good in a lot of ways. In Scripture itself, affluence is not antithetical to Jesus' kingdom. 2620, I read to you, a faithful man will abound with blessing. This is a good and right thing. Proverbs doesn't disdain wealth or prosperity, nor does even Jesus, who although he does say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and the eye of the needle is not some place in Israel where it's hard to get a donkey through. If you've heard that. Fair, just, honorable work can create good gain. And gain is good when it is gotten goodly. It allows you to provide for your needs and provide for your family and friends and the needs of others. It is good. And so we have to ask, what is the good gain that we have? And then when is it that, that it's other than good? And how will we know when it is and it isn't? And I think it has to go back to those relationships again. Relationships with the Lord and his word. Relationships with our brothers and sisters talking about these kinds of things. And even our neighbors. I think that's where the wisdom comes in. One of the greatest things I, uh, I transition in my group of 12 guys I meet with every year is that we started talking to each other about our our income and our giving and our debt and all that other stuff. It was very scary, but it was very good for us to do. Now, you have to do with that with someone who you can trust, but also do that with someone who's in a range of socioeconomic positions as you. It will help you with perspective. And then there's bad gain. Proverbs calls us to hard work for good gain, but it doesn't assume that if you have wealth that you got it from good gain. It assumes that some people and institutions use their power to get rich by bad means. Quoting a proverb, violent men get riches. Or, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth will only come to poverty. Countless proverbs decry unjust scales, warning the cheater and the liar, the greedy and the thief. Wrong gains can get you rich too. Proverbs assumes that all of us, all of us, will be tempted by this in some way, shape, or form, whether we have the power to enact it or not. But the most tragic thing about bad gain is that there's a way in which that it can deceive us into thinking if we have gain, that it means God's approved of how we got it. And in fact, it means that we might even think ourselves better than the other. It's okay, buddy. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Proverbs says. Our enemy uses the technique to think that our gain sometimes is about our goodness and our righteousness. 
Ted Turner would say, life is a game and money is how you keep score. That is a lie. It's extra in its folly because violent and cruel people gain riches too. Many may indicate good gain or it, can, it does sometimes indicate some of the cruelest and most wretched realities of being a human being. So be diligent here in examining our wealth. Do we hoard it or do we honor it as a gift from God? Do we do like the world and pay as little wages as possible so we can keep as much as we can? Or do we think about it differently, that I'm in partnership with someone and we all can grow in, in good gain? The Bible says profit is good, but it's not the goal. The goal is good gain for me and for my neighbor. Most of us aren't employers, so you have to ask the question as an employee. Am I stealing from my employer by the way I show up to work? Am I giving it what, I, what, it's, what it's due? What they're due? when I'm on the clock. Friends, these are all really hard realities, really hard questions. But because we're secure in our Lord Jesus Christ, we can ask them. We can ask them knowing that he is tender with us and he's trying to grow us into a more beautiful way. There is another type of gain that exists in Proverbs, and it's not bad or good gain, but kind of no to little gain. And the Proverbs is so straightforward at the staggering plight of the poor with no or little gain. It's the worst of them all. And that happens in three ways in Proverbs. Again, Presbyterian minister. Thank you. Um, so we show up to work to get good gain, but when we don't show up and don't work hard, Proverbs calls that a sluggard or slothful. And that laziness tempts all of us too. And it is a deadly sin, sloth. And it will leave us dead with no gain, with nothing, when we fall to its lure. And yet the sluggard is sometimes too easy of a target for some of us, because the sluggard is actually the least talked about of the three categories in Proverbs. The other one, the second one, is those who have no or little gain because of misfortune. Leukemia and landslides, disease and disaster, drought and death. Medical bills and house fires devastate the gain of families every single day through no fault of their own. That is no gain or little gain by misfortune. And the other one is little gain or no gain by oppression. Greed and power align to often amass wealth from those less fortunate. Exploitation, corruption, theft, fraud. It's all over the place. It's poverty due to another's bad gain. Proverbs sees the majority of the poor not first as slothful, but as victims of either misfortune or oppression, tragedy or injustice. If you just read through the Proverbs, you'll see. I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but clearly those second two categories are much more evident than the other because of the fall and because of the sin of others. This has been a huge repentance in my own life. Until I took a deep dive into the reality of the poor, I just assumed it was only their fault. It's, it's not just not reality, it's not biblical. Forsyth County is the third worst country 
third worst county in the country for economic nobility. The other two counties, worse off, are both Native American reservations. With all of our resources, our beautiful city is scarred by the reality that the poor are near certainly condemned to no or little gain for generations. There are no simple answers to this. But all of our answers start with seeing our community as it is, its wealth and poverty, in light of the scriptures. And so we have to refuse simple political algorithms or economic algorithms. We, we, we have to refuse neat and tidy narratives. And as the Christian, we must refuse anything that keeps you observing this hard reality or observing that hard reality only in light of your brothers and sisters who are Christians who are poor, that it's their fault. It doesn't mean that it's not that they don't have fault in that. It just can't be that neat and tidy. You might decry, but we, the whole system's jacked up. People are not working when they can. They just collect paychecks. And hear me, sloth is a real problem. And that's a real problem. But we also have to ask, how, it's, how is it better, more economically advantaging or gaining to get a check from the government than it is from an employer? Why? Maybe the whole thing really is jacked up, up and down, back and forth. It's never just personal sin, and it's never not involving personal sin. It's complicated. No simple algorithms, y'all. But if we know, the heart check is if we start to deny and devalue or denigrate those who are brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor, then we know we've already taken a misstep. That's why Proverbs says one of the approaches to this is about our ears. 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. We must lend our ears to the poor, learn and listen, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that profound call doesn't just involve our ears, but it involves our mouths. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We must lend our ears and our mouths to the poor. This isn't anything other than what our Lord Jesus does to us in our own poverty, our own poverty of spirit and our own economic poverty. This is the way he has dealt with us in his kindness. Here's a cool challenge if you get the opportunity. There's this thing that Carolyn, our own Carolyn Doherty does, and I think several of you have done it before. It's called a poverty simulator. And it's an exercise in which you go and you're given an amount of money and an income and then problems start to occur and you got to make it work. It's super helpful. It's an amazing experience, and if you get a chance to do that training, I would just urge you to do it. Because God's solution for the gaining is not just resisting the bad gain. He's gonna, we'll find out in a little bit. He assumes all of us participate in that some way. But it's a not about the, the gaining, but the giving that solves the problem. The entire structure of Israel's economic system, if you can call it that, maybe just how God shaped the community to give and is, is based on giving and giving back. First, there's the 10% tithe, right? 10% of your money goes for the, for the work of the church and the work of the community. Then there's offerings. Then there is interest-free loans demanded among the people of Israel. You cannot charge interest. Then, every seven years, there's a nationwide debt cancellation. Every 49 years, the year of Jubilee, it gets really wonky. All the land that you've acquired 
let's assume it's all by good gain. All the land required goes back to the original families, and we start over again. That's not saying that they, people worked poorly or didn't, you know, you know they, they might have been better at what they did and gained that land. It's just the way God did it. Now, I'm not saying there's a direct correlation, but I think we probably could learn something from it. To work hard for good gain is a good thing. And so we go and we do that, and then we give it away. That's the point. Good giving is about uh, having worked hard, doing good things, accumulating wealth, and then spreading the wealth. It's kind of a gospel redistribution. Don't hear political theory here. Hear that the way God shapes us is that as we've gained well, we give generously. We recognize we are blessed by having more. We recognize others' misfortune and oppression in the world, those who have little to no gain, and so we give our stuff away. God made you a steward of gifts. He's blessed you beyond anything that we deserve. So give it away. Give generously. There's a great example of this, and um, I, think it's, I think he's at Duke, uh, Professor Kozol. He has a book called Amazing Grace, and it's him researching uh, the poorest children in America. He does all the way through Appalachia and all sorts of places. This story takes place in East St. Louis, and if you know anything about East St. Louis, it has been devastated by poverty. He tells the story, the story about a family member gave him money to go get two slices of pizza to bring back for the family to eat that night. As he goes and gets those two slices of pizza, on the way back, this young man, he's like under, he's a, not a teenager, sees a homeless family and looks at his pizza and looks at them and he gives them one of the slices of pizza. That's gospel spreading of the wealth, even though that's not much wealth. That's a 50% tithe, by the way. The widow's might in the kingdom of God is always mighty. <laughs> Cue Jen telling me to do this. This was not my notes. I want to show you something. It's deep down in here because it's the most precious thing anybody's given today. You see these two things? They're red, shiny pennies. Two kids who uh, just started coming to the church, their family uh, started giving them allowances. And that was 10 pennies. They were real little. 10 pennies. And so they had, we don't take up an offering right now. And so they didn't know what to do. And so they met me out front and these two little guys come up to me and she explains, this is what we're trying to show them how to give back. And the two kids were beautiful. And one gave it to me. He was like, here. And the other one was crying and was like. <laughs> and I was like, I get it, little buddy. It's hard. It's a muscle. We'll get strong at it. Don't worry. And I'm going to put this, and I'm going to have a witness look at it. I'm going to put it in the envelope and do all the regular procedures that we have to do. And it's going into the bank account, and Jesus will rejoice over it. Our own Westminster standards say, endeavor to procure, preserve, and further the wealth, wealth and outward estate of others as well as your own. It even puts the others first. Proverbs says our good gain is not just meant for us, but for the unfortunate and the oppressed. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but the one who is generous to the needy honors God. Generous giving is grace. It's spreading the wealth of the grace that God has given us. It's a, re it's a redistribution. It's amazing grace 
that we've been given to give, we, we've been, that we've gained to give, and it is a joy. And yet the Bible's honest about the world. That it's not just about mercy. It, it, like all the scriptures, just, um, uh, justice and mercy are part of the, uh, of the very cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible presumes that some of our gain is tainted by the fall. And so we fix what's broken, whether we broke it or we benefit from the brokenness of the world. No one makes it through life without bad gain. We live in a fallen world, y'all. There's no stock, no single investment you've made, no company that is pure. If you've received any gain from your labors, there is some place in the supply chain that's bad gain. And we kind of just need to get over ourselves that that's in fact reality. That's the nature of living in a fallen world. A pastor once told me, he knew I was very serious about taking Sabbath, one in seven, and he said to me, if you turn your TV on on Sunday, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're making other people work. And at first I was kind of convicted about it, and then I thought, that means I can't flush the toilet or turn my lights on. And then I started thinking, well, I can't even get my newspaper on Monday because they worked on Sunday to get it. And I probably can't even get my vegetables on Tuesday because they were in a truck on, Mon- on Sunday. No, not on Sunday. <laughs> we have a person who distributes food. so um, Something like that. There's no way to operate in this world without breaking Sabbath to some degree, and there's no way to live in a world that, full of injustice and mer- uh, that isn't tainted. We get this. You've heard the stories of someone who has this incredible piece of art that's a family heirloom, and they just received it, and then they find out it's actually stolen in the Holocaust. And what do they have to do? They have to give it back. They have to repair from what they benefited from through no fault of their own. It's just part of it. It belongs to the other family. And now add the fact that we can be sinful in sinning in our gaining of wealth. So it's just repair. Don't think, again, all the talk of reparations, just repairing. That's what it is. And it's totally biblical. If, if gospel redistribution is because we live in a fallen world, well, gospel repair is because we benefit from living in a fallen world. And so we fix things when we can. So we have to do the hard work of examining wealth that is not pure. And this is not because we need to to, to burden ourselves with some type of false guilt. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't want anybody living in a terminal status of oppressor. That wouldn't make sense of who we actually are. But because we have gained wealth in, in a wicked world, it's just reality. But more importantly, because the gospel itself not only forgives our sin, but restores the broken, our brokenness, and rights wrongs, that's what it's all about. Think about, think about the New Testament. You know, the, the wicked tax collector ends up giving four times what he stole back, from, give back four times what he stole. So be free to hear about what might need repair. Could be stuff we've done, could be stuff we benefit from. It's okay. But it's only okay if Yahweh, the Father, if Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are your God. Because the tricky thing about how Jesus talks about money is that he talks about another God. He actually names it as a personified reality. It's called mammon. And that God will never free you to live by these ways. The real point of the sermon is that there is a false god called Mammon and the true God called Yahweh. 
Jesus says you can't serve them both. This God, Mammon, demands obedience and offers salvation. And it is a true temptation for all of us. It demands obedience. Thou shalt send your children to the right school so they can get the right job. Thou shalt take the job that offers more money, even if it means uprooting your family and abandoning your community. Thou shalt not give money away if it's going to hurt you too bad. Thou shalt give me long hours and lost time with family. But don't worry. I offer you hope. You know this. There's an eschatological vision, a heavenly vision, that Mammon puts out. It's those two older couples rowing on their boats, you know, in the placid lake, and everything is fine. There's no trouble, no difficulty. It's at like a, at an elderly Sanders, Sandals resort or something like that. You know, you've seen all the pictures? You've seen the lure? It's an idol of wood and stone and granite countertops and plastic credit cards. And it offers us ultimately death. But there is another God of wealth, the true God who owns it all. He knows wise gain and giving. He has wisely gained our salvation and then given it to us. And he is the true God. He knows generosity and justice. He knows our hearts are torn up about this stuff, and we live in a land with both oppression and incredible opportunity. He knows that sometimes we don't want to work hard, and sometimes we're working really hard and good, and we should be proud of our work. He is the one who mercy and justice embrace together, and he is our Lord Jesus. This subject is super difficult, and no one is immune to the sin, neither the poor nor the rich, of mammon's lure and luster. No one is. But friends... The subject is being redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit that works in us. No rich nor poor beyond Jesus' might and mercy to transform us. Jesus says, come to me in your poverty, in your good gain, in your bad gain. Come to me and I will forgive you and free you. I will forgive you and free you. And he says, give Give as I have given you, given you myself, my very life, all that I have. I'm the pearl of great price. I'm the most valuable entity in the universe, and I have bought you with a great price. I've used my good gain well and given it away to you. The deepest, truest, most eternal riches you could ask for are in me. For goodness sake, a wealth can't be too bad. Heaven's full of mansions. I'm going to get me a nice one. No, funny? That wasn't funny? <laughs> It'll be given to me. I won't have earned it. Jesus, I'm generous and good. I am giving. And everything else that mammon offers is folly or wickedness. I'm the righteous one, the rich one, and I came and disadvantaged myself to advantage you. And to do so is to participate, for you to do so is to participate in the kingdom that I'm bringing. And so he says, so now go in the righteousness that I have gained for you, in the grace and mercy that I've given to you, in the justice that I'm working out in root, redistribute it to those who suffer. Repair what is broken, whether you broke it or not. And that's how we think about these things. That's how we live in these things. It only works if we can trust the God of the universe and reject the God of mammon. I think C.S. Lewis says it well which he often does. 
he's talking about giving. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give very easily. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if your expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as your own, we're probably giving away too little. If your giving does not all pinch or hamper us, I should say it's probably too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving. This makes so much sense, but it only makes sense if you believe that God is our provider, our merciful one, our forgiver, and the Lord, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do, we do thank you that you love us. Help us trust you more with these kinds of things. It's really hard. And mammon has lure in every, everywhere we turn. Help us be more generous. Help us work harder for good gain and be proud of it. Help us watch out for ways we're not. All to honor you, to surprise the world what kind of God you are. We pray in your name. Amen.